Just before we kick off the penultimate episode of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, I thought I would say a quick hello. Hi, it is your host, Blake Howard. This, as you know, is another one heat minute production. We have got a stack of new content coming up with Josie and the Podcats, with Maria Lewis, the Travis Woods hosted Increment Vice, and also a big announcement on another minute by minute podcast coming up. And if you want to support the show and support the shows in an ongoing way, um, you can jump onto patreon.com forward slash Blake Howard. That's patreon.com forward slash Blake Howard. And for just five bucks, the same amount you would pay for a single coffee in a month, you can support our ongoing work, our ongoing shows, future guests, better equipment, and more podcasts for your ears and maybe even soon your eyes. So thank you so much for listening to this little quick message. We're going to dive in back to 1757, patreon.com forward slash Blake Howard. This is a one heat minute production. I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Matt. Welcome to the show. Look, my next guest, uh, I, I would normally sort of go through a florid introduction with most of the amazing people that I speak to on this show. And, and this is nonetheless going to be a florid introduction of my current guest. But what I'm going to do is instead, um, I was really lucky as part of the previous Michael Mann uh, production that I was doing, uh, got, got a little bit of notoriety in the one hit minute space and uh, had some lovely pieces written about the show. And one of them in particular uh, was written for Filmmaker Magazine. It only just came out a couple of days ago. So I'm going to introduce my guest by way of reading something that I said about her. Um, and uh, the interviewer says, although he's an avid reader of film criticism, the traditional written review format might not be his strong suit. This is talking about me. I'm self, self-admitted. <laughs> he's much more comfortable with conversations. And then, and then there's a quote. This is from me. If writing a film review is like playing a violin, I think Manola Dargis plays it almost better than anyone who's ever lived. I can't play the violin like Manola, but I'm in the orchestra and I can play my instrument. I don't want to dismiss myself and say it's the tambourine, but if it's a tambourine, I play the shit out of that tambourine. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's with my absolute pleasure now, a fourth podcast with this incredible, talented woman. 
uh, my favorite living film critic, the senior film critic at the New York Times, Manola Dargis. Thanks for coming back to talk to me about The Last of the Mohicans. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm not really sure that any human being could actually live up to that introduction, but I, I greatly appreciate it. <laughs> it's very, very nice. It's uh, very sweet, and uh, I appreciate it. It's really a pleasure to uh, be talking to you again. Yeah, so last time we talked, uh, we were talking about, you said, Blake, I don't think there's anything else I could possibly say about this movie, and uh, I was so grateful for your time at that time. But I guess this time, even after saying I was never going back, this 1992 Michael Mann sort of Barry Lyndon, but with way more excitement, The Last of the Mohicans sort of came across my table and I thought, you know what? This is a movie that in the Michael Mann renaissance of reappreciation is so often undimensioned and, 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 and not sort of taken as like Michael Mann canon. When I kind of think of it as the, the leap off point for one of the most dominant filmmaking and directorial runs of, you know, any filmmakers. And and in that, in that mm-hmm. stanza of time, you've got Quentin Tarantino leaping off with his great run. You've got the Coen brothers at the peak of their powers, late eighties, early nineties. They just streamed through there. But Michael Mann with Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali, uh, Collateral after that. And then Miami Vice, just an outstanding run, but it kicks off with this really classic, this really sweeping, this actually really concise, beautiful epic. So that is the leap off point where we start and particularly focusing on what I think is, you know, you know, we talked about a little bit with his execution uh, and, and the way that he sort of constructs characters and, and takes personas and metaphor and literal uh, things and does this beautiful jumble, this pastiche in his style. But I just think this, that last 12 minutes that sort of ends in a, uh, in a trial, uh, sorry, begins with a trial rather and ends with, you know, a, a sort of eulogy is maybe one of the most powerful endings of anything that I can really recall. Um, so I, I cannot wait to talk to you about this movie and about this ending. And so here we are, Manola Dargis. Um, well, first of all, I was just very happy to revisit the movie. I hadn't seen it in a long time, um, and I don't actually even know why, except sometimes movies that you love do slip by, and you, for whatever reason you don't return to it if it doesn't pop up somehow in your mind or you've done, or it's not an assignment. So for, for me, it was just a real pleasure just to go back to the movie and enjoy it as a pure movie. And I just, this sounds very melodramatic, but I, I turned the movie on you know, at home, and I was kind of just about to do something and the music starts immediately. And I just walked over to the TV and I stood in front of it and watched it. And I was just, you know, and I really felt thrilled to be watching it again. It sounds again, very corny, but, um, and I thought, Oh my God, I forgot how amazing this movie is. And you could just tell from the beginning. I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful scores. First of all, I just, um, this kind of sweeping symphonic, that has this um, this touch of melancholy and loss that you don't obviously quite understand. Though it's telegraphed, of course, by the the title, the very title, of "The Last of the Mohicans." Yes. But as it as the movie progresses and all of the terrible things happen, the music you start the music starts to make sense in a way. You know, the the kind of understanding that the, the kind of sorrowful uh, kind of eulogy quality is, is definitely there. 
Um, and so this was, uh, just on a personal note, this was the first movie that, this was when I fell in love with Michael Mann. Um, I probably had seen Thief at some point. I would imagine that I had. Um, but this was the movie where I became aware of him as a filmmaker, as a distinct, like I, you know, I'd seen a movie called Thief and I, um, I hadn't actually seen anything anything else. I mean, I was certainly aware of Miami Vice, but I was not into it, um, but um, <laughs> the show. Um, uh, but this was where I was like, oh, this director made this movie. And then that was the movie that hooked me. And then I started, and then I watched the earlier work. And then, of course, everything else has, that has come along. Um, so this was the movie that I fell in love with Michael Mann. So, you know, his work rather. Um it's, it's a hard it's a hard movie not to fall in love in some ways with the yeah. score with yeah. Daniel Day Lewis with Madeline Stowe as Cora with Russell Means as the badass dad Jingachi Cook Eric Schwieg uh, Jody Mays Mon- um uh, <laughs> Jody Mays Alice Alan. Monroe um yeah. and and look even what, what what I've discovered in the episodes constructing this mini series is you know, there's there's actually a bit of love out there for old Duncan, Stephen Waddington. You know, Team Duncan. He has a redemptive arc in this film, and he's sort of overshadowed by Daniel Day Lewis's gorgeousness and bare chest. But you know, he's 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 a lovable character in his own way. Well, he's given um, his humanity. You know, he just could have been a complete twit. You know, um, yes. kind of like the not very. You know, but but he's given a great deal of humanity. I mean, it's extraordinarily, it's very touching what happens. Um, and I think that's one of the, that's an important, I mean, man is very good at, at making fully formed, um, he's one of the great directors of, 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 of a secondary roles, you yes. know, I mean, creators of secondary roles that, that they, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the hallmarks of, I think, of the classical Hollywood um, uh, was that you would have a lot of very rich side characters, you know, a marvelous array of different faces who could come in and, and just in a couple of strokes really give you a sense of an, of an entirety of a person just with their face and a few gestures and a few words. And that's really something that I think that we don't have as much anymore. I mean, there are a few people, obviously, who are wonderful character actors, but I just feel like the older movies were stuck and I really feel like man is just so good at populating his movies with, you know, with really clear people, yes. <laughs> you know, they're not blurs. They're not, they're not placeholders. They're not just like generic man holding a briefcase or generic jazz dude uh, in a club. You know, they're actually these figures who come in and expand the narrative. And I think that that this is one of those movies where just small things come along. I mean, you know, Jared Harris has a kind of very vivid um, moment in the movie as a, you know, he's not even credited. I don't know if he's credited by name as a British lieutenant, but they are just this kind of pointillism that I think uh, man is really excels at. Um, in terms of, uh, I mean, it's a very interesting movie also to think about. This comes out in 1992. I think it's interesting. You pointed out that this is the same year, right? As, around the same year or the same year as Reservoir Dogs. And, yes. you know, I, I wonder, I mean, the movie, Last of the Weekends, I believe, was well-received, but I think in a way that there was something else that was happening that excited people in terms of American independence. 
Yes. And a kind of sense of uh, this kind of revitalized American cinema that isn't going going on. I mean, Jarmusch had already hit, Spike Lee was already around, but that there was something new and exciting was bubbling up. And one of the things that's really kind of, uh, I think is a virtue of Les and Mohicans is it's kind of old-fashioned romantic sweep. And it's very easy, I think, to kind of think of it um, to kind of put it as a, you know, oh, it's a period movie, blah, blah, blah. But if you actually kind of look at what the story is, it's a very, actually, uh, part of what the power of it is that it is very much a eulogy um, and very much of a kind of, you know, the sense of this moment uh, and this uh, and this profound sense of loss that is coming at a point. I mean, just as a, to remember that the, the movie takes place in what is it seventeen seventeen fifty seven seventeen fifty seven seventeen fifty seven. So you know, we are at the point of the the new America, not not the constitutional America, but the new America, and and there's a sense of possibility. Though of course, what we already know is that enslaved enslaved Africans have already been brought forth, and that's not really a big part of this story. But part of the story is the genocide of the American Indians. You know, I mean, the last of the Mohicans is a is a title greater than than uh, you know James Fenner Mark Cooper could have ever imagined. Um, yes. That this is that we're watching the end of something and the profound sense of loss that the country was built on this terrible loss. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling on and on, but you know. <laughs> It's but it, but I think it's it's a hard movie not to ramble about, and man is hard not to ramble about in this mode because, like you said, you know one thing that really struck me that you just said now, Manola, is that there's like there's a sense in a lot of bigger epics or some bigger epics, especially modern ones, that like it, it may as well be like a Chuck Jones Warner Brothers cartoon in the background where like extras are just cycled through and recycled over and over again. And there's no, there's no sort of dense tapestry. There's no, the B plot isn't the setting. And I think Michael Mann does that. Like the B plot of this movie, the undercurrent of this movie is a such deeply complex sort of rendering of, or, or, or sort of like a purely sort of authentic complex look at what happens when two colonial superpowers from Europe are fighting on a continent that they want to get a foothold in whilst there's, this multinational rich Native American society or, or a collision of American societies and an emerging what will be the new America, you know, pre, pre, um, pre-constitutional America. And then at the same time, you know, f- being so focused on a specific spot because obviously you don't want to start to blur the lines and carry this thing into any other story. So it's really hard to sort of talk about it. When you start diving into the detail, you start to realize how rich this thing is. And and that's what I think yeah. is so wonderful about, so wonderful about the entire architecture of the movie, but then is so powerful when that in the design, the very design to, to get you to the momentum, to get to this moment, to get to this judgment where you've now, you know, experiencing the third tier of political structures in the movie. You know, you've gone from Native Americans to monarchical to, to uh, you know, to um, uh, colonial, sort of this emerging demo- democracy. And you get this judgment pass and then it turns into this, like, beautiful, silent, operatic action uh, that has, mm-hmm. like, all the heartfelt loving and sweetness um, uh, of the melodrama of Michael Mann, but also has some of those big sweeping, you know, Sam Peckinpah visuals, but with some earnestness, you know, it's a, 
it's the it's the whole mix of this movie is just it's just the alchemy is just so perfect. Well, I think one of the interesting things, I mean, I don't know if we I think we may have talked about this is that for someone who is so associated and perhaps sometimes um, unfairly characterized as being a kind of associated with like macho um, stories, you know, kind of yes. uh, gangster movies and, you know, of course, heat being like the ultimate kind of, you know, shoot them <laughs> up in some ways. Um, that one of the things that is in all of his movies are that, that he pays attention to relations between heterosexual men and women. And I think the kind of the, the tug of romance is very strong within his work. And I think that, you know, again, I think that in other movies, you know, I've, I've always wished that women, you know, like in Heat, I think we talked about, I wish there were more, I wish that the, the female roles were stronger, bigger, but even in their smaller, get it, the space that they take, they're very powerful figures. Yes. And, you know, at the center of uh, The Last of the Mohicans is, in fact, um, uh, a love story as well. And that you have uh, Cora, the Madeline Stowe character, who in some ways kind of represents a new woman as well. I mean, that's very much part of of her identity. I mean, she there are there have been these strong or spunky and, you know, uh, uh uh, you know, uh, very independent-minded uh, women who are on these kind of uh, movies, and you know, uh, about the frontier, of course, frontier women. But the kind of classic often is like the woman is behind uh, the man who is shooting and protecting her for whatever evil forces. Unfortunately, usually um, Indians, um, or she's like in the middle of the of the wagon circle. But Cora is very much a kind of um, a hybrid figure in some ways. You know, she's clearly uh, she's kind of has one step you know, in uh, the old world and one one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world. Um, and that's her, her rejection of a marriage proposal early on. She is not, you know, going to do what she's told, which is to be, you know, to listen to her father and, and her proposed suitor and just, you know, go along. She's got something else going on. And of course, then what she has going on is Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, Part of what I love about Michael Mann is that he's a very serious filmmaker and he's a very, he feels deeply sincere to me. I mean, you mentioned, you used the word earnest, you know, and I think, um, I think sometimes, particularly when it comes to uh, heterosexual romantic love, I think sometimes we get embarrassed, you know, we can handle maybe a romantic comedy, um, but I think the kind of very, um, uh, kind of raw and uh, open emotion that Michael Mann taps into, you know, including here, um, can seem really corny, I guess. You know, I will come back for you. You know, I mean, one of the great romantic moments in... <laughs> I will find you. I will find you. I will find you. I'm sorry. I will find you. You're right. Exactly. I'm sorry. I misquoted it. Um, you know, that is just, it's just, you know, makes me all like, very, very like, ooh, you know, I think it's just very moving I, and soaring. The, but I also the line think that gets me that, a flutter Manola every time, because I just think I will never be as cool as this man, is when he looks at her and she says, what are you looking at, sir? And he says, well, I'm looking at you, miss. There's nothing <laughs> yes. cooler than that. There's like, oh, this guy's cool. And then that exchange, well, that's just amazing. It's beautiful. And here, I just want to have a caveat that I have never read the original novel, so I apologize. Um, I, <laughs> no, I <don't> <laughs> we can both we can both confess here, uh, nor have I, because in okay. Australia, in Australia, Fenimore Cooper, uh, unless you know, um, there's one other guest on the on the show 
uh, a sort of a, a political analyst and and a bit of a literary nut by the name of uh, J.R. Hennessy, who I had on the show, and he actually studied them at university in Australia. Um, uh, uh-huh. uh, but but I haven't I haven't met yet many folk who've who've tangled with the original novel. Yes, it's not really. I don't think it, I I'm sure it's taught somewhere, but it was certainly not taught when I was in school. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things that I actually also love about the line is it maybe seems kind of cool and certainly romantic is that it's also a kind of acknowledgement. I see you, you know, I mean, yes. I, and I also see it's like, here's a man saying, I see you this to this, to this, to this woman. And it's again, you know, it's a kind of, uh, in, in a way it's kind of emblematic of, well, like man sees women. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I feel like man, Michael Mann is going to insist on seeing women in his movies. Um, I'm just going to close the window because there's a siren. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, I wonder if um, this is just something I wanted, uh, if I could just shift a little bit. you Because you used the, um, the word architecture yes. um, to talk about the movie. And, you know, rewatching the movie, of course, I was very, uh, you know, struck by the obvious, which is that the, the ending of the movie is a perfect, it's not quite perfect, but it is a very much of a bookend to the beginning of the movie. Yes. Um, and, and how that functions and how it's played out. I mean, he is a very obviously meticulous filmmaker, but I think the structure is, is really also really interesting. And if you would like to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I think, you know, f- for anyone who's listening to this, I, I hope you've seen the last of the Mohicans for us to get into a little bit more detail, but it opens with that wonderful uh, sweeping mountain shots. The sort of the gale starts roaring from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones starts roaring and sort of sets the tempo of the entire movie. But it begins with these three trappers on a hunt and they, they stalk their prey. They, they, they're streaming through the forest to catch a buck and they shoot him and, and they take him out. And in that moment, in that death, Jingachikuk comes over to the buck and sort of says a prayer of thanks that they're grateful that they 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 walk away today, um, but they're grateful for him. And that's the sort of structure of that moment. And much in the same way, the ending of the film is them streaming after their prey, hunting for it. And despite the fact that Jingachikuk has shares that killing blow, the entire ending, that final 12 minutes, that orchestration all ends with him sort of lending a similar epitaph. But in this moment, rather than, you know, being one of his brothers of the forest, it's, uh, it's, it's, mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. his, it's his son. Um, yes. And so we have, but the very first image that we see on, and it's under the credits is of, of this beautiful nature shot. I mean, it's the smoke, you know, these kind of smoky mountains. Um, it's not the smoke. I don't think it's the smokies themselves, but it's a extraordinary kind of blue, um, misty morning or twilight. It's unclear. Um, and it's very, it's very, very beautiful. And I think that particularly watching it in 2019 with, um, as we are all, or most of us who are sane and not completely demented believe in climate change, um, <laughs> that it's extremely difficult not to look at that um, and see it as this kind of, you know, this moment of like, this is what we had, you know, look at this, yeah. uh, look at this unspoiled beauty. And of course it's a movie and the, the beauty has already been spoiled, but 
that this is a vision of this extraordinarily beautiful country. Um, and this is what we have. And what they're hunting, of course, is is a buck, as you pointed out, but they're hunting a buck for, for, for purpose, for something so that they can live. And they, on, I mean, the, the scene of him talking to the dead deer, you know, is, is a scene of like, of, it's an incredibly soulful scene because it's, you know, you, you're not just killing for, for sport. No. You're killing to live, and you you need to to do this to live. Um, and but you're going to honor the animal that has been free. This is not you know some factory farmed animal. Um, and at the end, instead, now we have you know men hunting men. That's extraordinarily depressing trajectory. Yes, you know. Um, and so we have you know at the beginning we already have the domination of nature, which uh, you know is kind of the beginning of the end. Um, but then at the end we just have this kind of war of all against all, and it's just a, you know and the and the last shot in the movie again under uh, the credits is of uh, this beautiful um, vista. It's very similar to the opening uh, landscape shot um, that starts us off in the movie. And so we, we begin in nature and we end in nature. And in the middle, what we have are human beings spilling blood. That is in, you know, just simply put, like romance aside on everything else is a really kind of incredibly uh, moving, I think, um, kind of just that alone is an incredible bookend. I was very moved by that. Yeah, just again, and, I think. And, and also I think the one echo that I love about the beginning and end is, in the beginning, it's just seemingly this pure nature. And then in the ending, we see what are like larger figures doing this eulogy before they're dwarfed into nature and they're just sort of blending in and they're passing through. And these three characters that all represents these last ofs all just sort of disappear into this vista. And it's, mm -hmm. it becomes even more tragic because it's just like, you know, you know, time is about to pass. Nature is about to be, you know, na nature's about to be squashed by these forces that are sort of uncontrollable. But in these like Titanic mountains, hopefully that they, they sort of can still dwarf some of these, some of the bloodletting, you know, it's really, it's a, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the perfect, it, in, in essence, it's like a, a thematically completely perfect Michael Mann movie because it's like, this is, well, this is his, this is everything. Right. And is, you know, and there are three, there are three people in the beginning and there are three people at the end. It's just that they're now three, there are three different people. The, yes. the formation is very different. And I think that um, having the movie's uh, climax play out on this, you know, uh, incredibly dizzying and very beautiful cliff, you know, it's like, if you start thinking about that, it's almost a little on the nose, but you know, I never yes. thought about it until now actually <laughs> that it is on, it, it's actually like, it feels like the, the edge of the world, you know, I mean, it has that. And that, that the last shot of, of living people are three people, very different people with very different histories to this country. You know, um, yes. you have a, a native American, you have an American, uh, a new American, uh, the, 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 um, Dan Day Lewis figure, uh, Hawkeye. And then you have Cora Monroe, who represents something else. You know, I mean, you just have a different configuration. And it's like the initial configuration of two uh, Native Americans with uh, a, a different kind of Native American who's not an, an Indian, Daniel Day-Lewis's Hawkeye. And yes. then you have Madeline. So I just think that, that it's like the, it's actually 
the whole geometry has, has changed. Everything has changed in that moment, you know, and it's not, I don't think that here that it's the woman as a kind of spoiling figure, you know, who is somehow, I think, you know, I think it's just what we're seeing again is uh, this representation of the, of the genocide of uh, American Indians, you know, um, which is very heavy, which is yeah. super, you know. And, and, and the, the deeper tragedy is that in amongst all this war in colonials where characters like Magua, um, you know, fights off, you know, fight, fights off all these British soldiers. And it seems to be the bloodletting is, you know, a little bit more overt and, and romanticized in and of itself. The, the the deeper tragedy is now these two tribes, these two figures from different tribes are having to war against one another for their different views about what to do with these warring factions of colonial superpowers in the country. You know, it's right. like, you know, that's the, the deeper tragedy. And, you know, at the beginning, there's like honor, like you said, you know, there's honor in that kill. Um, but when you're hunting men at the end, there's no sort of beautiful words that need to be exchanged between Chigatikuk and Magua when they finally face off. It's mm-hmm. death needs to be dealt out. And then Russell means, you know, for a, a guy who's never acted before, he's just an activist at this point. Michael Mann does that thing that he does where he's like, I want to get one of the coolest Native American people that's ever lived on the face of the earth, a guy who's extremely brave and stood up to the FBI <laughs> and uh, I'm going to get him to play an actor. I'm just going to play a part mm-hmm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. And he just delivers this like incredibly powerful, I'm not going to say anything to you. We've put ourselves into this position moment and this exchange with Wes Sudi's incredible Magua. And it's, it's just so soaringly tragic and powerful. Um, their wordless exchanges in the finale of this movie. Yeah, no, I think that I think the casting of Russell Means, and um, I don't know how much you've gone into this, but as an extremely important um, member of the American Indian movement, um, and you know, really a, an activist group that was uh, active around the same time as the Black Panthers were initially, and were basically also hounded by the FBI, really terrible and part of COINTELPRO. Um, so to put him in this in this piece is this other layer that is deeply moving um, and very, and, and means is wonderful. Um, you know, he, it just, it's a very Comple- kind completely of. Completely wonderful. Uh, like, yeah, it's just, it's not to be overstated just how, how incredibly he is in this movie and, and, yeah, talking, no, and the, presence just, he's, he, yeah. he, he's like a mountain in this movie. He's, he's, he's a presence. No, he absolutely is. And I think that, um, and that he is bringing a kind of, I mean, you know, I think uh, I'm not saying that this was a, a kind of sneaky thing that Michael Mann did, but I just think it's a very smart thing to have done. You know, I mean, it's also extremely important that you actually have Native Americans playing Native Americans, you know, yes. in contrast to kind of old practice of putting, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, white people in, in uh, red face, basically, and just letting them loose to, you know, make incoherent noises and be shot on mass, you know, uh, for the white hero could ride off into the, into the sunset in the frontier. Um, I think it's extremely important to actually, and this is 1992, you know, we don't, this is way before we have uh, the kind of, I think people are more self-conscious at least, or, you know, about uh, in terms of casting and giving people who are supposed, you know, not doing this kind of, um, You know, obviously there are exceptions, but actually having people who are representing, yeah, uh, 
it's it's <coughs> it's a you know I think you you and I uh, you and I and I think definitely very savvy movie buffs now who can frequently go back and revisit older you know whether it is a western and whatnot or and look at cultural representation you know people have got that thing of like <coughs> retroactively cancelling people and I think that that's one thing that sort of struck me in the research of this project and just reviewing it and again it's a real credit to Michael Mann's sort of authenticity and meticulousness is there's no cancelling Mohicans like it's got Russell Means like you know like it's got it's got Russell Means as like the main dad character Eric Schwieg um other activists are as part of this he's got there's even moment there's even a moment which I still love to this day because it just shows that it shows Michael Mann's attitude to treating your audience with intelligence, which is Duncan trying to educate Hawkeye. So Steve Waddington trying to educate Daniel Day-Lewis's character on whether Magua is a is a is a Mohawk yeah. or a Huron. And there's a moment where he and I've watched it, I've watched this movie a hundred times. I had to have to in the time that I've you know in my entire life, right. maybe maybe fifty times. And and I've watched it, and every single time he's like, he's a Mohawk. He says, no Mohawk, he's Huron, and he doesn't explain it. <laughs> He never explains it, why he is Mohawk or Huron. It's just that you go, oh, yeah, well, if I grew up there, I'd get the different nuances of culture, and I would look at that guy, and it would just be impossible for me to think that he was a Mohawk. But, but, but well, Michael Mann doesn't take any time to explain that. He just says, Hawkeye knows, so you as the British outsider right now in this moment as the audience can just take it on our word, this guy's Huron. Well, right, because one of the kind of worst tendencies is the explainer that, yes. um, you know, that will get tucked into some screenplays where we have a little black background information or like, you know, when you remember when your dad died in 19, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing, you know, suddenly characters who know, e who, uh, know each other intimately are explaining obvious facts of their life for the audience. Uh -huh. No, there's not. I mean, you're not going to get that. I think, you know, my man is too good a, a, um, an actor. I mean, a director, but um, you know, one thing I just wanted to mention because this does happen in the last 15 minutes is mm, I think maybe my favorite moment, this is kind of awful to say, but it's because it's a truly tragic moment, but visually I think the most striking um, image in the movie are of the two um, kind of opposing forces. Uh, 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 the Russell Means character and the West Studley character um, stand facing off in long shots. I mean, yes. this is interesting. It's a medium long shot. Uh, so it's head to toe with a little bit more background. And West Study as Magua is leaning in an almost impossible kind of situation. I mean, it's a really profound uh, shot. And he is about to die, and he is. I'm assuming that we are okay with spoilers because it is the last 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can, you've, I think, with both one heat minute and now the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, the we're telling you on the tin that you need to have seen this movie, and yeah, you, you can totally, to. you can totally have paused it and listened at any point. But I, I'll make sure in the introduction that the. The warning is long and uh, and and detailed that you must have seen yeah. this movie for this okay. to make sense. But I mean, it's just, it's an extraordinary shot um, because it's also really unexpected because so far what we've been doing, there's some kind of medium long shots, but we've kind of had a lot of like long shots so that we can see them on, on the cliff edge. And then we have close-ups of people's faces and we do have some, you know, uh, body shots, but this is a very 
striking um, shot of these two two uh, uh, American Indian men literally at the edge of a cliff, you know, I mean, this is a kind of, and one is about to kill the other. Um, and the one who is about to die is, is leaning in as if to lean into his death. I mean, there's just this very, very striking kind of, uh, the kind of the literal geometry of their bodies is really, uh, it's shocking. I mean, it kind of takes your breath away. It, um, and it's so much more breathtaking because the, the quick fire editing between their re- their their wordless reactions beforehand is really brilliant as well because you firstly get this moment where Russell means as Chingachakook is sort of shaking his head and Magua sort of in a, in a briefest of moments has sort of an ache on his face like he's just experiencing all the wounds and he's sort of letting the pain show on his face and when they're sort of faced to the to the power of each other's gaze that's when he he accepts, like there's a pivot, like there's a quick cut back and forth to Russell Means, a sort of steadfast sort of determination in that moment and then back to Magua. And instead of that ache that is on his face before, that that's when this this sort of, you want to say it's almost like a facade or a mask of acceptance just sort of slides over his face and then it goes into that okay. shot that you're talking about, the, the like the breathtaking final moment like we've been talking about cliff edges and mountains and vistas these two huge mountainous figures in this movie are facing off from one another you know the mm, maze well mm-hmm. these titanic sort of grecian statue-esque you know things things yeah. of gods yeah and they're facing off against one another leading leaning in as you said and the geometry of their bodies and but yeah i just i think all of those things that lead up to it and then to punctuate it with this shot and to hold like it's like feels like you know, it, I, I don't even think I can talk about seconds in the end of this 12 minutes. I think I can talk about breaths. It's like three or four breaths, deep breaths, and this score swelling before Chingachukuk sort of does that, that you know, balletic spin and, and, and sort of closes the distance between them. But, I mean, it's interesting also, what does he do? How does he kill him? I mean, you know, is very, I mean, the, the posing of the, because he has a rifle, he has a long gun, right? He has just it's down. Oh no no! It's a big. It's this weird. Uh, and I and I have to look it up what the actual weapon. No, is because he, it's, well, it, I don't know what the weapon is, but it's. Oh, sorry, I was just like playing it. I was just trying to. I mean, it is a. It must be um, whatever they were using. I, I'm not a weapons expert. This is terrible, but um, it's some sort of rifle, right? I mean, no, it's no, a very, it's, it's it's like a. It is. It is like a, a to- musket. No, it's not a musket. It's like a. Um, it's like a tomahawk or an axe. Um, oh, is that what it it's, is? It's, okay, it's, it's I'm like, just trying like, to remember. It's like a one-handed weapon, and it's oh yeah, 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 and, and it's got like a little a little point on it. Um, yes, and it's got this. Yes, okay. So I'm just looking at it right now. Um, the thing that I was struck looking at this at this uh, like just freezing on this because I can't play it because then you'll hear it. But um, is that it's an echo of the lacrosse game at the beginning of the move toward the beginning of the movie. I, yes. I had never. You know, I'd never thought about that. And the thing about lacrosse, of course, is it was played by Native Americans very early on. They invented this game. I mean, it's a really, and it's a game, you know. I mean, it's a really, that's an extraordinary, um, it was very spiritual. um, And it just, but the echoing of that just just struck me again, you know, because it's a, a kind of deployment of a physical act that we have seen earlier, you know. 
uh, people playing, and it's both uh, Indians and um, new Americans playing this game. And it's a game, you know? <laughs> and at the end, we have a kind of similar gesture with something that's very similar, you know, at least visually. It, it, it is a visual echo, but now it's death. So I'm just saying it's another one of these kind of the way that the beginning and the end, um, there are all these kind of, they're connecting and mirroring each other in some sort of way. And it's very sad, though. It's really things have turned. We've not, it's not man, uh, men hunting to feed themselves, you know. Um, it's men hunting men. And it's not people playing a game. It's, it's men, again, killing um, one another. Um, Oh, what a sad movie this is. I mean, it's just such a... It is a a tragedy. uh, It's an absolute tragedy. It is, absolutely. Um, But, and it it feels... It would have always been tragic because of the story of the the United States is also a story of of genocide, as we know. And um, the fact that this movie acknowledges it, and that's another thing. I mean, one one of the great kind of underrepresented stories and certainly by white filmmakers, white Americans has been um, native Americans and what happened to this country and what it meant to basically evict um, different peoples from their own lands, historic lands. I mean, it's a very there, this is not a topic that has um, that American filmmakers have embraced. And so that's another, I think, um, Another reason to really respect and admire Mr. Man. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, uh, just that one final touch that you talk about is to just even have the complexity of multinational Native American society. Because in Australia, you know, the birth of Australia too, like the birth of the United States, is one of genocide. And, you know, right. there's some wonderful sort of what what has emerged as, as sort of Indigenous history has been more richly catalogued. Is There's some incredible maps that you can find of Australia where you sort of take the physical landscape and it, it, it doesn't divide it into what the states that we've come to know in the sort of, uh, in, in, in the Australia as a nation story. It, it's in the sort of colonial history of Australia, but it, it then maps out like hundreds of nations of indigenous peoples that lived here before and where they mm-hmm. roughly were based in the country. Uh-huh, and so, uh-huh. and so what, what I, what I, what I, what I'm thinking about personally is like in, in this is I just love that it, for me as a complete outsider and this is what's rewarding outside of the final moments of this movie, which I think are just so masterful, but even just like the, the conversation and dialogue uh, and the diplomacy of multi multinational Native American tribes being represented yes. in discourse yes. with an emerging yes. democratic yes. American society is just like it's unheard of and maybe it's the time that's just not mined nearly enough to show like a completely different landscape political and otherwise in in the United States. But it's just like to imagine then later on, it feels, you know, completely homogenized by that point. It feels like a genocide's already happened and there's just a white America. There's an enslaved America. There's this emerging, you know, you know, fat, you know, dominant part of the country that, thinks that slavery is bad and sort of going into civil war. But this particular snapshot, 1757, feels like such a, you know, fascinating, fascinating time. I agree. I think it's not, you know, also just in terms of representation that there are distinct tribes and they have their distinct identities. They are not just a kind of undifferentiated mass known as as Indians, you know, that there is actually no 
this is the nation of this. And, the, you know, these are the Mohicans and it, these are, you know, the Huron. And there's different distinct um, groups of people rather than, again, just being this kind of generic background. You know, the last thing that I would just like to um, talk about, because I do have to run to um, my first movie of the day, um, <laughs> is I think that there, I think it's really important and instructive that the movie does not end just with a heroic shot of Daniel Day-Lewis as Hawkeye. Exactly. I think it's really important that at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, because I always think, you know, I think really smart directors tell you a lot in the beginning of the movie, that a lot of times the entire movie can be encapsulated in the beginning. Um, you know, it's not every movie, but movie, the, the beginnings of movies tell you a lot. And sometimes there are roadmaps, right? Um, it's like, this is how, this is what's going to happen in the movie. So yes. we have a chase, but we have a chase that is a cooperative chase. It is a collective. It is not just the one single rugged individual American man who is doing everything by himself and having this rugged individuality. This is a family that is hunting together, you yes. know, um, and that I think is extremely important in terms of kind of really dealing with one of the great American myths is about this radical individuality um, that um, you can see, I guess, Hawkeye, maybe uh, this uh, liter the literary critic um, um, uh, R.W.B. Lewis has a book called The American Adam, and he talks about Native American mythology, not Native as in Native Americans, but about American mythology. Um, that really kind of comes up in the, um, the 19th century. And it's the uh, idea of the authentic American as a figure of heroic innocence and vast potentialities poised at the start of a new history. And I think that what's interesting, again, I have not read the book, so forgive me, but in the movie, is that doesn't really fit the movie's conception of Hawkeye, at least that he might be quote unquote authentic American. Um, he certainly is, you know, he's, he's a man of nature who can like live in the woods and off the land, but his innocence, you know, his heroism is not innocent. If anything, the thing about Hawkeye is that he already knows everything, you know, in terms of all the badness, he yes. knows, he knows his story that he is an American who is not just about his potentiality, but he lives within a family that has already suffered with the people that have already suffered and been, and been victimized by these kind these, these invading forces. And then I, I just think it's extremely important that there are, there is a family at the beginning and there's a kind of different organization at the end, but it's not just one man against, the landscape you know i just yeah. feel like this is really important because and his, I think defiance, a lot his defiance though too manila just to your point his defiance and his and his morality is all measured in his standard of community so it's all yes. about the people yes. around him yes. going look i don't care yes. about your french and indian war here i don't care about your colonial colonial superpowers if you guys want to be part of a colonial militia that's fine but we in this country need to protect our own so it becomes then about them protecting their families and their wider community. And so it all just reinforces this interconnectedness of what, what, what you're saying. It's not, not, even though it's Michael Mann's conception of the great American hero, he, he knows how important, you know, in heat parlance, how important his crew is, you know, cause you have to have the best crew, just like you've got to have yes. the best family and the best community. He's like, he's very yes. understanding of that, 
that like personal ecosystem that's so important in this wider tapestry that he's trying to build. Right. I mean, so as, as heroic as, as, as Hawkeye is, I think that he is also different because he is embedded within a community and that the communities, you have these different, you know, communities that are dependent upon one another as well. You know, it's like these settlements that are dependent. And, you know, you have that in the very, towards the beginning of the movie where the three men come to the little house in the woods, you know, and you have uh, everyone's breaking bread together, you know, the, you know, Native Americans with the new Americans. And they're, and that's a very, you know, perhaps romanticized, but also I would imagine truth to it, you know, and you have this kind of harmony that, and you get a sense of like, ah, we could have lived together yes. rather than having one side wipe out the other, you know? And so you have this kind of sense of like the Eden, you know, and then the fall of Eden. And what Michael Mann is telling us is that Eden was already destroyed in yes. um, the 18th century. I mean, yes. it's a pretty, that's a pretty, um, I mean, I think in a way, the, the, the more you dig into this movie, the more you realize that the, the depth, the depths of its tragedy. Yes. And I think that in it's an uncomfortable one in a way, I think if you're a certain kind of uh, American who doesn't really want to face uh, how the country became as powerful as it did, it was on the, on the, on the, on the backs of other human beings. Um, and I think that for all the kind of, you know, romantic cinematic romantic flourishes that this movie has, there is this really core sincerity and also politics you know, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the one tragedy would have been Manola if I didn't get to speak to you again about a Michael Mann movie for a podcast project. <laughs> and, and, and apart from anything else, I'm just thrilled that that was able to happen. Um, it is absolutely always a pleasure to talk to you about Michael Mann movies and in long form multi-episode podcast projects, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you for being a part of the show. Well, thank you, and I look forward to us going through uh, Thief and uh, Black Hat. No, and- don't you start. <laughs> In every episode of Dollar, it's been someone, and when you say it, then it starts to be real because people are like, oh, Blake really respects Manolo if she says to do another one. Look. Uh-oh, uh-oh. uh-oh here so, we go. Uh, yeah, I'll- I'll talk to you uh, soon about whichever next Michael Mann movie you want to discuss, okay? <laughs> You're the best. Thank you so much, Renola. Thank you for everything. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. If this wasn't probably immediately before you were listening to Michael Mann, I feel like my guest right now would deserve the this guest needs no introduction, but... You know, this wonderful author um, of of some of the seminal uh, movie-making novels, you know, The Oliver Stone Experience, Mad Men, Carousel, TV, the book. Uh, he's, he's a prolific author. He's a writer for New York Magazine and Vulture. You would see him write brilliantly from all things, uh, whether it's sort of louding praise on the assassination of Gianni Versace and giving it its undue uh, credit, or if it's one of my personal favorites, um, talking about just the magisterial quality of Samurai Jack. Um, he's also the editor-at-large at RogerEbert.com, and uh, he's now what I like to call a friend, and he's come back for another mad Michael Mann podcast with me. 
ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to talk once again to Matt Zolazites. Matt, welcome to the last hey, 12 minutes of the Mohicans. <laughs> great. This is a great idea for a podcast. I'm so glad that you uh, are doing it. And in fact, I've, I've often said, it's funny that you, you, you were very specifically 12 minutes. I, I always say 10. Uh, I don't know why, just because I, I like the number 10 is rounder to me. Um, but I always say the last 10 minutes of Last of the Mohicans is about as perfect as cinema gets. Yeah. I, but I, 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 I actually uh, meticulously timed it. So I'm assuming that the 12 minute mark begins with what his entry into the camp or they're leaving the camp after uh, Duncan is, is it, it, it's, killed. P- it's pretty much, um, I think it clips just a few seconds off of the Sashem's dis- like decision-making process or that sort of, that, that sort of court. But, but it's what I didn't want to miss and why I was being sort of, you know, it had a great ring to it firstly from a functional perspective for the title, but I just really loved the Sashem's decision. So the, the bickering between the Magua and the multiple translations, um, for Duncan's character, I just love the the quality, the ring to that scene very particularly, and then the judgment outlay. Um, because you know, for anyone who's a, for anyone who's a huge fan of it, there's just something so beautiful I've always found in, and, and particularly in revisiting it, Magua cursing out his Huron chief in French mm-hmm. when he doesn't like yes. the decision. I just found had such a, I don't know, this beautiful quality of I'm so infuriated at uh, uh, infuriated at you as a person and as a as as a, and a a figure of authority in my world after everything that I'm doing because he genuinely believes he's he's laying the foundations for how the Huron can exist in the future that he curses him out in French and I just couldn't bear to miss that some of those judgment moments because I think it's just so perfect especially Duncan's gesture too I just yeah there's a lot you know, concentrated dose in this last 10 minutes, last 12 minutes, last 15 minutes, so much stuff happens. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, oh, without it's, a doubt. it's so perfect. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's a great moment. And it's also, uh, it, it's also exemplifies another thing I really like about this movie, which is it's about, it is a historical drama that happens to have kick-ass action scenes in it. And I think the original theatrical cut, which was a little bit leaner. Uh, I believe subsequently he added eight minutes and cut four. I may be remembering that wrong. It's not a huge difference, but it feels different, even it, though the changes are minor. Agree. It's it, it went from an original 112 minute running time to 117. But you are right. There was clipping to make that adjustment. Yeah. I, I in my mind, I personally prefer the theatrical. It's amazing how how like even even minor changes like that can change can just change your sense of a film, but. But, you know, uh, it was often described as a great action film, which it is. But I also think it's, it, it seems more clearly a historical film that happens to have great action sequences in it to me. Yes. Uh, now, like, like uh, you know, in the way that it's not as good of a movie, but like something like Dances with Wolves uh, is, is essentially a historical epic. And there's like th- two or maybe three really great action scenes in it. Yes. Uh, but you don't. But you don't say, "Oh, yeah, that's an action movie." It's it's just it's a weird perception thing. Whereas I think Braveheart uh, does feel like an action film. Yeah, Braveheart is more re- unrelenting with its action, whereas Dances with Wolves is like Castaway in the Frontier. Like it's just mm-hmm. there's a whole stanza of that movie where it's just a guy on a fort 
by himself being prepared yeah. and doing things. I think actually it's probably my one of my um, favorite elements of that movie is that whole stanza where just Costner just gets to act and be charming by himself, and there's just no yeah, there's no yeah. one in that ecosystem. The prairie. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, but this movie uh, came out two years after that, and I think it is more. Although there are some, as I understand it, uh, anthropological errors in the movie like for example the you know the burning of duncan at the stake was not something that the that the uh the huron did yes uh or or the or the mohicans uh i think maybe occasionally they might have but it wasn't a common practice uh any more than it was for white people um but i mean that's a little bit more of a kind of a tarzan sort of thing to do but but for the most part I think it's a really remarkable film in the way that it makes the Native American characters into full-fledged characters. And the character of Magua is one of my favorite characters in the entire history of movies. I think Magua is a great, great character. And he's like, he's right up there with Iago, except he's like, he, he, he's more human. He's more understandable. Like, and to me, I've never seen a better example in a movie of the idea that, uh, in order to play a villain, you have to work yourself into a headspace where you're the hero of the movie. And like in Magua's mind, Magua is the hero of this movie. And you know what? I think he kind of is the all, he's the anti-hero of the movie. I don't think of him as being like a villain, really. Um, he's certainly a menace, and you're certainly rooting for uh, for uh, Hawkeye and Korra and Chingachgook and everybody else on that side of things to, uh, if not kill him to escape him. And like the fact that I don't necessarily want them to kill him says a lot. Yes. Like, it's not like a kind of, he's not like a lip smacking mustache twirling bad guy where <laughs> you're like, I can't wait till they kill that guy. I kind of feel like I understand this guy. They have a, they have irreconcilable. These two sides have irreconcilable differences of opinion about who is correct. And it's going to end in death. And I'm just, I'm just here for the, I'm just here for the chess moves, really. <laughs> like, I'm not rooting for anybody. I'm not rooting for anybody when I watch this movie. And even in the climax, which is so exciting still, I'm not I'm not thinking, you know, I'm rooting for uh, no further loss of life. Yes. That's what I'm rooting for. <laughs> you know, when I'm cheering, when I'm watching that movie, when I'm cheering, it's, it's I'm cheering the prevention of murder. <laughs> I'm not I'm not cheering for one person to beat another person in some contest and and I think that's a different way of looking at action films and frankly many of my favorite action movies are that kind of movie yes where 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 like the very best some of the very best action films are that way in fact the recent um Black Panther Ryan Coogler's Black Panther I think owes a lot to Last of the Mohicans in, in the relationship between the main character and his adversary who is a very Magua-like uh, Killmonger, I think, is very, very much a Magua figure. It's, it's so funny that in this podcast, I've spoken, I've, I've spoken on a number of occasions of how great villains do exactly what you said, and that Killmonger and Magua share the same thing. In that, you could totally walk around. Some people I've seen sort of um, cheekily wearing a T-shirt that says Killmonger was right, and and yeah, I, and I it. And in, and in many instances, I go, we need a T-shirt based out of this podcast that says Margot was right. Like, because he genuinely is. He genuinely is well, right. Yes, he, he is. You know, and, and you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know, man. I, I just feel like it's the relationship between, like, this is such a historical cliche, but it's like 
Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Yes. You know, as defined by, and I think Ryan Coogler has probably brought this up more than once, but, you know, Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing uh, positions them as uh, opposites in a, in a dialectic. And Jonathan Rosenbaum, in one of my very favorite pieces of criticism about Do the Right Thing, writes about the entire movie as a dialectical movie in the sense that, like, for those unfamiliar with the term, that's the idea that there are these opposing uh, rhetorical or philosophical forces that are being articulated through dialogue and through action and through situation. And ultimately, none of them, the movie is not presenting any of them as being right. Yes. And in fact, it's going out of its way to undermine your perception that one of them is right. And the most skillful dialectical movies are the ones that get you thinking, yeah, 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 okay, that person's right. This is the correct way to think. And then almost immediately, some other character will say or do something that undermines that or contradicts it and makes you go, oh, wait a minute. Yes. And it's the timing of those dialectical like oppositions and, and sort of essays on that. So to like digress out of the 12 minutes that we're focusing on, I've always loved that it's, it's when, um, when we arrive at Colonel Monroe and him being, him, him sort of, uh, expressing all of his colonial power and his very hierarchical thinking and his dismissive like nature with colonial militia and very, you know, very much sort of, you know, sort of stamping that English class on uh, and classes sort of view worldview on everyone who interacts with him. That's not basically a British soldier. It is perfectly distilled yeah. and timed to contrast Magua's awful tale really of his family's, ordeal his own insane survival story and then him making the most out of enslavement um and you know you know basically becoming a death giver to the people who've enslaved him in order to win his freedom to allow right. this sort of espionage and then pursuit of revenge and it's just like when when you yes. when those things compare and contrast with each other in the movie you just go God, this is masterfully structured to do exactly what you talked about just then. You know, it's so, it's just so perfect. And his story, I think, resonates even more and more on repeat viewings when you sort of, when you sort of realize the emotional trajectory of those couple of moments that you're flying through to hit that realization and that oh, revelation. Definitely, definitely. And like from, from that, from that uh, very early moment where Magua is uh, walking with uh, the with the English soldiers, uh, es you know, in that escort through the woods, and uh, he says something to the effect of, you know, in in uh, in Huron, uh, the white man is like a dog to his woman. Uh, I can't remember. Exactly uh, yeah, it's quote, like it's it's something like he's a dog to his woman. He's always he always puts down his tomahawk to to serve their laziness or something to to that effect. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, to feed yeah to feed her hunger or something. Yes, to feed her laziness. I believe that's the line. Yes, and and they don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> yes. And then he said, he says, "What did you what did you say?" And he says, "I said Magua understand English very well." <laughs> it's, it's and it's such a great fuck you moment, and it's great, <laughs> and it's just a great like you know France Fanon uh, uh, you know kind of battle of Algiers kind of joke. Uh, yes. You know, it's it's like a sympathy with the colonized and the oppressed that is very unusual yes. for a Hollywood film. Very unusual. And especially, this is not the beleaguered, saintly hero. This is the antagonist. This is the guy who, like, superficially, you would say, is the bad guy in the movie. 
and you and you're rooting for him in the way that you would root for like a Paul Newman character in the '60s. Yes, you know who's like who's a wise ass. He's a wise ass. He's a rebel. He doesn't fit in. He's playing everybody. Uh, he's just a great character, and and you know his value system is alien to us. And in fact, that's another thing that I love about this movie is the values that are depicted are not 20th century values. We're now in the 21st, of course, but at the time, 1992, you know, it's 1992. It's the United States. It's it's increasingly kind of a secular, uh, progressive kind of country, notwithstanding pockets of you know reactionary thought. Uh, and when we hear somebody like express misogynistic uh, sentiments like Magua does, and also his behavior, like essentially he, his, his wife and family were taken from him in war. And he's like, well, I'm going to get a new family. Yeah. Which is what sets up this moment that we're about to discuss. Uh, he wants a woman and, and he, and literally a woman, like it almost doesn't seem to matter what woman, as long as she's fertile and can give him children. Yes. Like he, he really just wants, like, it's like a piece of property almost to Magua. And like, it's more than that. Like he loved his wife, he loved his children, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like we're not in touchy feely, uh, no, he, for, you know, we're, for, not, for, we're, for we're that, not reading aloud. The, right. We're yeah. not reading aloud, from, you know, the second sex or the feminine to speak here. With <laughs> no, he's, it's, it, not, this is not the way he rolls. He's, he's squaring at this point. He's purely squaring a ledger in his mind. Like, you know, you can, exactly. that's, that's what's tragic. Exactly. That's, that's what's tragic. He's, he he definitely has the capacity for that, but he's had to squash it all to survive, like to get to where those moments. I also really love, and, and you talk about that is like I love the rich complexity that is happening with the different portrayals of nations of Native Americans in this movie that I feel like is so rare of movies of this time. Or maybe it's because movie there's not many Hollywood movies that really focus. Um, on this time period because one of my favorite lines as well just like that wise ass line i love it you said it's so battle of algiers that michael Mann. that would be a huge compliment for mr man to hear that um i i i really like the line that um hawkeye says to duncan at some point he's like he goes oh that huron scout back there and he goes oh no he's he's not a huron he's mohawk he goes he's no mohawk he's huron and what i love is that me as a person who lives in the now 21st century and especially someone who lived in Australia, I have absolutely no clue what the difference between a Huron and a Mohawk is much like Duncan. Right. And it positions me as an outsider who has absolutely no clue. And it doesn't explain that line away. It just moves on to continue telling the story as in you are out of you colonizer are out of your depth. <laughs> like there's way, there's way more complexity and, and, what it would seem completely obvious to me as a as a local now as a as as as, as a colonial local um is so alien to you well you know this has become like the this is turning into the magua hour which is totally <laughs> fine with me but but you know that was the day if there had been a saturday morning cartoon spinoff of last mohicans it would have been the magua superpower hour <laughs> you would have just been traveling around like executing various english people um but the moment where he puts the gray hair under the knife, and he says, this is the baddest thing I've ever heard anybody say. <laughs> the guilt of me. It's like, gray hair, before you die, I want you to know, like, I want you to know that I will put under your, I will find your children and put them under the knife so that, the, so that your seed will be wiped from the earth or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he's like, he's, he's like so, so your seed will be wiped from the earth forever. <laughs> like Forever, forever, forever. <laughs> Jesus. Magua. Magua. Holy shit, dude. 
take it down a notch. Yeah, <laughs> forever, forever. And then he cuts his heart out while he's watching his heart being cut out. <laughs> oh, cuts my God. I'm, so, I'm so sorry that I'm laughing, but it's like, yes, it is so, like, he, he is he's ex- exacting that vengeance with such, with just, like, such a matter-of-fact way. It's like, I'm going to put you, I'm going to put he, you he, under the... He's, he's, Yes. Yes. He's not. He's not even like consciously like relishing it. It's like finally, like something. It's almost as if something that was lost to him has been restored, which is the point of his, you know, his accept his grateful acceptance of the offer of Cora's um, uh, sister, um, Alice. Alice Monroe. Uh, the offer of Alice, and then. Uh, uh, you know, in place of Cora. Originally, it's Cora, and then I think they switch it to Alice. And he doesn't even care which which sister it is. I, I we, there's no indication that he's like secretly he can't wait until he gets to you know assault one of these women. Like there's no sexual sort of grossness at all to no. Magua. And no. to, but then at this moment, it's like, oh great, I get a new wife. Like it's very, uh, as you say, matter of fact. It is like, you know. A, a, the squaring of a ledger, as you put it, is a nice phrase. Um, but, uh, you know, but this is what brings me to this moment. This moment on uh, the cliff. Which is, um, I'm just going to narrate this whole sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. So it begins with a shot of the land. A very slow, almost voluptuous pan across the land, which is ultimately the prize here. The frontier is the prize in this, and it is it is a mirror image of the opening shot of the movie. Yes. And uh, and the land is this. It's made to seem very ripe, very fertile, and there's a lot of emphasis on the rolling hills and these kind of like almost. Like I'm just gonna say it, it's kind of like a vaginal sort of shape, like the V shape of the of the of where the mountains join. And Dante Spinati's camera uses the you know the the, the gradations of blue green and the mist and everything to to give the mountain range this sensual shape, so that you think of it like the 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 sexual reproductive prize is indistinguishable from the prize of the land, right? Yes. And then we get to this shot of the uh, Magua's party leading the Monroe sisters uh, across this narrow um, pathway. Yes. And you see one of the uh, one of the soldiers uh, dragging Alice along by her arm. And then at that point, uh, a scout, you get a shot of a couple of scouts uh, going up ahead of the rest of them. And then the camera pans right. And that's when the violence begins. Here comes the rifle butt. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and then the Michael Mann slow motion guy falling shot, which was used 200 times on Miami Vice. Uh, yeah, and and uh, you get, uh, you know, this nonstop sort of like man-on-man combat. And then Magua draws first blood and second blood and you know it's remarkable how unlike most fight sequences in Hollywood movies you kind of get the feeling that the fight is over from the minute that those those first two hits land absolutely like it's not like the guy who's the guy who's been cut and is bleeding is automatically in a weakened position compared to the person who is unscathed 
And Magua may not be physically stronger than his adversary, but he, he is faster and meaner, and he, he puts him under the knife, just like he put the gray hair under the knife. And then here comes Shingachguk uh, racing up the hill, and here comes Hawkeye, the adopted brother, racing up the hill, but they're too late. It's like a classic silent movie situation, like racing to save the brother and the son, uh, but, but uh, they've arrived too late, like the moment has passed. And then we get this incredible Kurosawa-like image of the two of them battling on this uh, outcropping of rock. And the killing blows are delivered out of camera range, which is interesting. It's almost like the, you know, giving him a bit of dignity in his final throes of life. And then the slow motion soundless scream of Chingachgook, even though you hear the rest of the, the sound, including the splurty kind of noises and uh, the, the body sliding over the rock, and then Hawkeye comes up, and you hear him yell. He yells, and brother. then we get to this. Yeah, yeah. And then we get to this uh, moment. Uh, it's all leading to this moment of, of uh, Alice, Jody May's character, seeing her lover having been murdered, and she gets. Um, and then Daniel Day Lewis comes out sees his brother's death and screams and then there's another cut of the body falling it's kind of obviously a dummy like that you know dummy technology wasn't as advanced i guess in 92 and here we come to the moment we've got alice facing magua and notice that she's already moving out to the ledge that's yeah. interesting like she's she's in a safe position she's not in any danger of falling and she immediately begins going there and this incredible exchange of close-ups between west studi and jody may you see that Magua knows what she is doing, and you know that she knows that what she is doing. And then she turns and looks at the at the drop, at the sheer depth of the fall that she's about to take. And then she looks back at him. She makes eye contact with him one more time. And I believe this is so that he knows that this is deliberate. Yes. And then comes this moment where I don't know. I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to feel sympathy for this guy, but he lowers his knife and he reached his hand out. Now, what he's inviting her to is a forced marriage uh, uh, where she'll, you know, have sex with somebody she doesn't want to have sex with and probably bear their children. So it's really not a great offer, and she refuses it and leaps. And then we get the third of the Michael Mann people falling to their death shots in the sequence. Uh, weirdly framed upside down in a, in a kind of a tilt shot. And then Magua registers what's happened, and he just walks off. And then we see her at the bottom of the canyon, and here we have yet the third scream. There's a lot of number threes repetitions going on here. Yes. Uh, chorus screaming and crying. And then this sets up the final run of uh, a violent confrontation that's going to take us to the end of the movie. Now, what's interesting from a film historical standpoint about that ending is about that scene with Cora. Uh, killing herself is that it is birth of a nation it's 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 maybe one of the most if not the most famous moments in birth of a nation like along with the the, the ride of the clan and that is there's a moment where this mixed race uh former slave i mean you know at the time they called them mulattoes which you know is a term we we know we're not supposed to use anymore uh is uh sort of in the same position like he wants to uh, rape this white woman and he ch she's escaped from him and he chases her and, and they come to a, 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 a geographical uh, 
situation that is identical to the one pictured in Last of the Mohicans, and she leaps to her death. Now, it's also important to note here that in, in uh, James Fenimore Cooper's uh, uh, Last of the Mohicans, the, there's a scene like this, and there's uh, the 1936 version has a scene like this that is uh, pretty much the same scene. Yes. I mean, it's not done in that Michael Mann style. You know, it's black and white. It's four by three. Uh, fairly simple sound design. It's not a widescreen color Dolby stereo like this. Uh, and it doesn't have that kind of droning, hypnotic, time-suspending music that Michael Mann loves. Uh, but the content is the same. And, and the narrative positioning of it is a little bit different, but it's basically the same scene. Uh, but I think this Michael Mann version really flips things around because in the 1936 version and in Cooper's original novel, uh, the threat of race mixing, uh, whether consensual or non-consensual, is presented as a, a not only undesirable but horrific. Yes. And there is no sympathy really for the for the Native Americans who are coded as "quote unquote" bad, yeah. right? Like there's good guys and there's bad guys and the bad guys are bad and you want them to die. And there's not this sort of weird um, mingling of, of uh, antipathy and, and empathy for characters like Magua. And there's not this uh, positioning of competing values, uh, which are not necessarily identified as being correct or incorrect by the filmmakers. Yes which is the case in the 36 version, in my opinion. Like, I think the 36 version, like for 1936, for a product of Hollywood, I think is fairly advanced in its attitude towards the collision of cultures at that period, but not very, and certainly not compared to this. Yes. Um, and so in a way, you could say, like, even though I'm sure that Michael Mann is not fond of film academic phrases like this, it does feel like a subversion of birth of, the na birth of a nation to me. Yes. Most definitely. Because I think it's contextualized with the fact that Alice and Uncas have had these exchanges, even though they're fleeting and they're sort of very chaste, as, is, as it makes sense to. And they've made it very clear as well, even in the brief way that it does, that this poor, sickly young girl who's probably just been on a boat for like eight weeks to get to where she needs to get to, has gone from fluttering a, a fan in front of her face and sort of courting boys or, or, you know, fending off suitors, has now been thrust into the French-Indian War <laughs> and watched her, heard that her father's dead, been dragged across the frontier and literally sees the man that she's had a connection with or developed, started to develop a connection with murdered in front of her and a gesture of, yeah. a gesture of come towards me is, is one that's coated in blood. And so it it's, it's his hand. His hand is bloody. It's his blood. hands are literally blood on his hands, <laughs> yes. killing for lover. Yes, it's, and it's, he's it's... like, and he's over here, like, you know what? I'm going to do something nice for the girl. <laughs> Magua is, you know, he's not wired in the way that you no. and I are. This no. is not. This is not the way his brain works. Like, I think that even like the most ranked sociopath among us might have a moment where they think maybe now is not the time for for this gesture. <laughs> But then again, she is perched on the edge of the cliff, so maybe there's no other time. There's no other time. He has to he he has to do it in his way, and he has to sort of abandon that moment and just say, "Look, I know that this is you know it's 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 actually kind of it's actually kind of candid in a in a sort of perverse way. It's like this is who I am, but 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 yeah. but I'll lower my knife for you. That's that he, that's the weird coding of his mind. 
that like is so incongruous to our modern sensibility. Um, um, but it, but it's, it's what makes him enduringly fascinating. I think that's, that's that moment that he does. Well, it. you know, Wes Studi should have been uh, nominated for an Oscar for this, and of I course. think he probably should have won. I agree. And uh, he's I, great, absolutely great. This is like the peak. This is the pinnacle of his career, in my opinion. He's given some really excellent performances, but this is it. And and the way that he understands this guy is so deep, and it's such a uh, a sixteenth century mind. Yes, you know, and 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 all of the actors in the movie, I think, have done a great job of trying to imagine themselves into the headspace of seventeen fifty seven on the on the North American frontier. Um, and, uh, and not, uh, constantly be signaling to the audience, oh no, I'm really an enlightened 1992 person. Oh, like, you know, I think that's one so, of the reasons why so the good. relationship between, yeah, Cora, the relationship between Cora and Hawkeye, I think is so powerful, resonates so strongly with men and women, uh, straight and gay from what, from my experience, uh, because it's so primordial. It's a, it's, it's really like, Hey, we're in a hostile environment. We could be killed in any moment, if not by enemy tribesmen or, or enemy soldiers, then by animals or the elements. And like, we got to stick together and we're going to rut and maybe we'll make some kids. Yep. And, and they'll serve. And if we're lucky, not all of them will die in childbirth. Some of them will survive us. And maybe we'll build a house in the woods and hopefully that won't get burned down or crushed in an avalanche. <laughs> I mean, like there's a, a list of shit that can go wrong in this situation so- is endless. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely endless, and you have to be very practical-minded. And like, I think, you know, part of the genius of this movie and Christopher Crowe, uh, the co-screenwriter, I think needs to be uh, credited as well as absolutely. man who co-wrote it, um, is that it doesn't sentimentalize what it was probably like to live during this time. Like, it's a very kind of extravagantly romantic, uh, exp- at times expressionistic movie in the way that it's made. It's very modern in the way that it's made, but the but the land itself, the people, the nations that are depicted, are not uh, condescended to by by saying, "Oh yeah, they're just like us." Yeah, and and I think that's what it has in common with uh, one of my other favorite historical films, uh, Barry Lyndon. Yes, I think Barry Lyndon presents that time and place as being like it might as well be another planet. And I think that's something that uh, movies, particularly Hollywood movies, are afraid to say because they're afraid that people won't um, do the work of trying to imagine themselves into a different value system. So they pander to us and they all, and they do things like, you know, they'll have like a grossly sexist and patriarchal society and they'll make sure to have one fairly minor female character who expresses some like mid 20th century uh, feminist thoughts that were probably cribbed from Wikipedia. It's so fucking lazy. <laughs> it's written. And, and, and it's much, much more interesting if you have the characters be of their time and they're sort of struggling with protean versions of those thoughts that are credible for the time period and that don't feel like they were made up by somebody like last week. Yes. You know? And, and uh, that's, that, that's one of the qualities I, like about the authenticity of Alice because some folks, you know, in, in criticisms are like, she doesn't have much to do. She gets this moment, but I just love, I love imagining personally myself when you just were listing that wonderful laundry list of all the potential things that would kill a couple in a, in, in that world, uh, a, a couple forming <laughs> together. I, I often think about myself when I've rewatched this movie is like, I would right now, 2019 me, Blake Howard would be equally 
as helpless as Alice being dragged oh, into the God. American frontier. And like, that's the character that I empathize with as far as like, that would be me. I would be the person who would be, be like, sick. I'd be like walking around the fort going like, does anybody have any hand sanitizer? <laughs> anybody? It would be <laughs> like, so when yeah, I... Like, is there a vending, I'm sorry, is there a vending machine? Like maybe on a lower level? Oh, guys. Uh, I, I, was hoping, I, I was hoping for a Mountain Dew. Have you ever had one of those? Any toilet... Any toilets around here have two ply toilet paper, guys. I just, I just, I can't do one ply anymore. It's like that's 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 life, you know. That's that's life. And so when I see her in this movie being dragged along, being disheveled, experiencing like being like walking post traumatic stress with all of this really harsh violence that's happening, I I, I think. Well, she's a hundred percent realistic the way she's portrayed. Like as yes. you say, she probably didn't even want to go there. Yes. Why would she, you want to leave London? Why would her sister? Her sister wants to be there. Cora actually wants to be there. She tells Hawkeye in that great scene where they're lying together behind the log at night, and she says, uh, "You know, the place. On the contrary, this place is stirring to my soul." Yes, she likes it. Like that's why she rejects Duncan's marriage proposal because he represents England and the old way and the patriarchy. You know, like yeah. the, the you know the the society that defines women's roles, and she can find her own way. Like this is an unbelievably hostile place, the frontier, yet at the same time she recognizes the freedom inherent in it and the ability to remake herself, which has always been the lure of America, at least in myth, this idea that, you know, you can come to America and you can make another version of yourself. Yes. And be accepted. You can sort of kill the old self and create a new self. And she gets that. And you know, Alice uh I mean she I I don't see any evidence that she ever has thoughts like that. I think she's thinking like, boy, I wish I'd never left England. What was I thinking? <laughs> yes. Yeah, she's and a, I don't blame her. I don't, I don't blame, blame her. I don't blame I her either. Situations like, yeah, I just can't like, I mean, I, the other day I, I uh, did 90 minutes on a treadmill at the local gym and I have a callus on my right foot <laughs> and I got done with it. And I was like, well, I don't, I'm not going to be going to the gym for a while. <laughs> I would be so fucked <laughs> in the world of Last of the Mohicans. I'd be like, you know, does anybody have any TV I want to turn off? I can turn off the motion smoothing for you. Like, what <laughs> what usable skills do I have? None. None. Oh. Hey, Matt, will you dress this deer? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Where's the dress? <laughs> well, that's a, well, we dress that. Um, I, 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 would, I would equally, maybe for a couple of days, I feel like I could carry things. But I wouldn't. <laughs> but I wouldn't know where to go. Like I wouldn't have this inherent sense of direction. Um, I have put up a. I have put up a tent before, but with instructions. So yeah, no, you're so, you're so completely out of your depth that I. But you're so right. Is um, I was speaking to and folks who, who are hopefully listening to this have already listened to it. I was talking to the great, um, a writer for Brightwall Darkroom, Fran Hoffner, who's currently studying 18th century literature. Um, at the moment and you know one of the things she she detests about movies which I think you echoed that sentiment is when people are prescribing lazily um, worldviews in the 21st century worldviews into 18th century characters in contemporary films like it's her it's a huge pet peeve for someone who is like literally in the in the midst of studying and 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 unpacking um you know, liter you know, literary understanding and all of the the the, con 
the context of the time that is being portrayed in those things and watching those, like you said, uh, I think you said the protein views starting to emerge in the in the writing in a more subtle way because obviously at that time they're trying to adhere to the, their current values as well as push the envelope. And she's like, they, they, there's none of that nuance in Hollywood movies when they approach this time. It's, uh, it, you know, it's, right. it's so rare for them to happen. So I think it's just that, you know, one thing I love about Alice and in this moment of agency in this perfect little silent film that exists is that it just synthesizes all of those thoughts like that helplessness and that agency. And in that moment, you know, there's, there's a rock, there's a rock and there's one of the most unimaginably difficult lives faced in front of you. And in that moment, it's the most logical thing that she could do because she just doesn't believe that she's, she doesn't believe that anyone's coming for her, which is even more tragic at that moment, right? Like, yeah, it is. Well, yeah, she doesn't, and she, die, you know, she kills herself right before the rescue. Yes. This this whole film is a tragedy. It's a tragic, tragic story, and it's you know, it's it's uh, you know, the the the, the first uh, immutable truth of the Buddha is that life is suffering, and that's what this movie's about. Life is fucking suffering, man. <laughs> it's suffering, and I said, no, it's not pessimistic. It's not cynical to admit that. No. It's every day, like water on a rock, there are things that are wearing you down, and at the end of it all, you die. That That's true for everybody. And, you know, like one of my favorite movies, All That Jazz, the comedian in there says, you know what death with dignity is, man? You don't drool. <laughs> yes. You know? It's the truth. It's the truth. And, like, this, movie, this is a movie about how hard life was and, and, and all of the values, all of the things that people want are very, very simple. They want a mate. They want a family. They want children. They want maybe they want a house. If not, if it doesn't work out, they'll deal. A house would be nice. They're gonna have to build it themselves, probably. Yes. They're gonna have to cut down the trees to do it. Like you're aware of all of this stuff, like that it's rough. It's really, really rough. And on top of all that, there are these political conflicts between the French and the English, and the Huron and the Mohawks, uh, that are uh, just additional encrustations of difficulty on top of you know, all the other things. And like, this is the kind of world where you could say, you know, you could say to somebody, Hey, you haven't been married like, yeah, twice. So what happened to your first wife? She died in childbirth. What about your second one? Uh, she got, uh, her face was eaten by a mountain lion. <laughs> and you'd be like, ah, oh, bummer. I mean, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be shy. You wouldn't be no. like, wow, that's incredible. It's like, because this is a thing that could happen. And, and also that's the, the, thing that I left the window open. A mountain lion came in and ate my wife and my children. And now I got to start all over again. But that's, Oh, that's too bad. That's the pivot that they do with that great Cameron uh, homestead scenes or the, the, the multiple yeah. homestead scenes, which is you see this beautiful little, you know, um, soft fire lit oven lit home, very warm and accommodating in the hostility of the jungle. You see it there and it's open uh, like sunlit way with the British soldiers that are there and, and, and the different tribesmen, Mohawks, you know, the, the few Mohicans that we have around and you get these guys all there. But then when it flips, you realize, oh, this is just a precarious clearing in this insanely yes. hostile space. And a war party could just trounce through. There's no fences. There's no like you're against a wall with great views and, you know, cameras that you can dial up on your phone when someone rings your doorbell. Like that, that doesn't exist in this world. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like you, you are just completely vulnerable. And it's just that little patch, this little tiny oasis you're trying to carve out of this hostile place and it's still the hostile place 
Like the fact that the yeah. Camerons can still live there and survive and have made a little space. It's like, this is, this is not civilization as we've come no, to understand it. Why, uh, I think that's why the character of Hawkeye, I think, you know, despite being kind of a Tarzan figure, like he is, he is kind of a, a white man's fantasy in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think he makes more historical and psychological sense in this movie than I think I've ever seen him make in other versions of this tale. Yes. Uh, because it is presented as a consequence of bad luck. Yeah. You know, like he was adopted, he was, uh, he was adopted by somebody who uh, didn't feel like murdering him just because he was a white boy and, you know, representative of the, of the colonizing, uh, you know, English. Yes. Uh, and raised him, and now his identity is that of a Mohawk. And that's it. And it's not something he spends his days, like, worrying about the, you know, the political correctness of it. <laughs> yes. And, like, you know, like, am I appropriating? Like, this is not something that Hawkeye is <laughs> thinking about. It's, you know? He's uh, yeah. not. And, 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 you know, the movie, the movie doesn't present it as uh, a and positive no, or a negative thing. Nor do we have any, and it's, any stupid 20th century extras going, well, how do you feel about having those tattoos. I mean, are they your tattoos, Nathaniel? You know, <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> like, it's not something. No, it's not something that you know would would happen. And you no. know, and it's also it's the way it's linked to uh, Cora's story, which is Cora is an English woman of means. She comes to the frontier, and she essentially uh, becomes a traitor to her class. Yes. She's already on her way there, and she rejects Duncan's marriage proposal. That's step one. And then she falls in love with Hawkeye, who is who is essentially made the same journey as her, but against his will. Yes. You know, she is going to become a North American, not an English woman. And, uh, you know, and, and but she's doing it by choice. You know, she has agency. Yes. So it's different for her. And, uh, you know, it's a very, very rich film. It's a very rich film. And like as many years as I've been living with it and as many years as I've been thinking about it and writing about it, I've probably written like five different pieces about this movie. Uh, and I did a, you know, a chapter of the Michael Mann video essay series, Zen Pulp, that concentrated on this uh, movie and, and particularly Magua. Um, I still keep discovering new things in it. It's, it's, you know, I think it's as rich as, as Barry Lyndon. It's kind of like Barry Lyndon's muscular kid brother. <laughs> yes. It's, it's Barry Lyndon's brother who is much more open with leaving his bare chest out of his shirt, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's a mixed martial artist version of Barry Lyndon. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm having I'm having a lot of fun, if, in case you're not hearing how much fun I'm having talking to Matt, because I, I'm going to go back and listen to this, and there's going to be so many catchphrases from this episode that were totally an unintended but beautiful consequence of us talking about this movie. The, uh, that needs to be on the poster. Via Vision in Australia just brought out the ultimate cut, and I'm gonna have to talk to those guys and just say, "Listen, guys, I've got a quote. <laughs> have I got a quote for you for the cover of this thing? Have I got a quote for the cover? Oh man. <laughs> yeah, look, I think you know the the great one. Roger Ebert talks about you know movies don't ta- movies don't change the people who watching them do, and I think I love this movie so much because I've been aware of it since. I was probably too inappropriately young to actually watch it um, and saw it because of how insanely popular it was. And every every year that's gone by, I've watched it, not with the same sort of rigorous obsession of heat, but every single time I've gone back to this movie, I've just, I've, I'm staggered by how rich it is. I'm, sta- I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm constantly refocusing and redialing into characters and 
in a strange way is like you just dial into just a character. And I think that what is so rich about it is that characters who seem like these sort of archetypal crutches in this sort of canonical kind of a story are just so deeply fascinating and rich when you sort of dig underneath them. You know, your Alice's, your Duncan's, your Magua particularly. I just find that those characters serve such an incredible purpose um as I, as as more i watch it and 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 the rich tapestry of all the indigenous nations of america like on show um as the as the context for the whole movie it's just again it's really beautiful world building that doesn't doesn't ex- feel the necessity to be didactic and explain everything it's it's sort of just as this no. is the world and so I just yeah it's it's a it's a it's a really it different... makes you catch up it makes you you know I I tend to res- the movies I tend to respect the most are the ones that make me work a little bit yes agree and this movie makes me work a little bit and it, and in a weird way like it sort of reminds me not that it has anything in common at a plot level but it's like the god the first two Godfather films in the sense that you know I've seen the Godfather Part Two probably eight times in my life and I'm still not a hundred percent sure about some of the plot points. Yes. <laughs> yes. In it, and and I believe people when they explain them to me and they tell me that they're all very clearly laid out and it's like I just attribute it to the movie being a little bit ahead of me and that's a permanent condition and that's okay. Yes. And I think and I think the last last of Mohicans has a little bit of that as well. Like I think it's you know there there are certain aspects of it that you really 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 have to be paying attention to catch the subtleties of some of the relationships between particularly the French, the English, the Huron, and the, and the Mohawks, and, and Magua's motivation, uh, with the, and particularly in his conversations with the general uh, Marquis, the Marquis de Montcalm. Yes. Uh, and, 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 the, and the expediency of many of the decisions that these characters make uh, in terms of their allegiances and how those allegiances change. Uh, and, and it's very, a lot of it's instinctual. A lot of it's based on, uh, emotion rather than logic. Um, I think that, uh, Cora, uh, Cora and Alice's dad, uh, I think he may in some ways, uh, have sealed his own fate by, uh, making certain decisions based on uh, his love for his daughters. Yes. You know, like, I think he may have been compromised a bit as a military person because his daughters were there. Um, and that's not to say he's a bad person. He's just a human being. Yes. Um, and all, all the characters are like that. And in fact, even like Uncas, who in the first few viewings of this movie, I felt like he wasn't a fully formed character. That, But I, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think he reminds me of uh, – there was a guy that I knew in middle school and high school who kind of reminded me of him. He was quiet. He was very quiet. He was very physically capable. If you were ever in a fight, he was definitely the first guy you would want with you. Uh, he didn't talk about what his needs were. He didn't talk about what his fantasies were. He didn't talk about what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He didn't talk much. He just hung out. He was like the guy who was there in the room with everybody else who was doing, who were doing the talking. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was a person, he was a complicated person. He just didn't express everything. And I think you can see in Eric Schweig's performance, uh, a lot of that comes through. I think I, I understand why Alice would be attracted to him. Like, not just because he's a good looking guy, but there's something very genuine and decent about him. Yes. And and in the brief expressions that you do see him in, in the Cameron's cabin, he's extremely articulate in this in with his intimates. And he, and he, and I think there's also something about staging, you know, I think Spielberg gets this almost better than any other filmmaker that I ever see, but just having bodies in spaces and to 
distill relationships with just uh, proximity. You know, Eric Schwieg is everywhere that Hawkeye is, always watching mm-hmm. his brother, exactly like you said, mm-hmm. and it's always about how he's positioned to protect him. You know, even when the soldiers come into where they are, he's like he's the guy who's almost standing in front of Hawkeye, like, I'm going to take yeah. on all these soldiers. And it's the calming down and the positioning of one another. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautifully rich little tale. And I think that the last 10 minutes that synthesizes all of the themes of the movie in this beautiful silent cinema with this, like you said, this mesmerizing time stopping score, um, is just this, this great result, like this great, this great expression of like serving all the purposes of all this richly detailed story and just like going, here is this incredible expression at the end of what, of of everything without any of the talking. A good friend of mine uh, who is Sri Lankan, uh, he and I were having a conversation about um, the divisions in the United States currently, and uh, it didn't it didn't exactly reassure me. But I said, uh, he said, well, you know, my country, uh, you know, we've dealt with civil war for quite a long time. And I said, how was it eventually resolved? And he said, uh, most of the people on one side killed most of the people on the other. And I thought, Jesus Christ, I hope that's not the way things are going to go here. But, you know, when I watched Last of the Mohicans again recently, I thought about that. Like, you get to the end of the movie, and uh, Chingachgook and Hawkeye and Korra are still standing, and uh, everybody else who was important to them has been murdered. Yes. And Magua is Magua is dead, and, and uh, several of the people in his war party are dead, uh, and uh, General Monroe is dead. Um, a lot of people are dead and, and the people who are not dead, uh, carry on. And, you know, the, the, the side that has the most not dead people is the one that tends to dominate. In the end. <laughs> and it's like, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. Sometimes it's a lot of, it's a matter of like, who's going to die and who's going to live. And that's who, that's who ultimately controls the territory and, and the resources and, and wins the right to reproduce, not just their, their bloodline, but their culture. Yeah. And their that's ideas. how it goes. And it's a very unsentimental take on that. It's very hard. Like I think, like you know, this this movie, <laughs> this movie is a tale told by Magua. Yes, it's the tragedy of Magua. That's yes. that's this movie. Look, I think that's and it, it, it's all it's all of our tragedies ultimately. Well, I think that's the absolute perfect closer. Just like this perfect twelve minutes of cinema, the perfect closer to this conversation, Matt Zolazites. Thank you so much for being a part of the last hey, 12 minutes of the Mohicans. This has been so good. Always great. a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk about action cinema with you.